what you have been practicing before. Mm. What were you practicing before you started practicing Anapanasati? Well, I guess I was kind of doing Anapanasati. I used to, you know, uh, practice the way uh, Denisa Rabiku taught. So it was kind of similar, but uh, I necessarily didn't really grasp, you know, the significance uh, of all the different elements of, of the practice. And the aspect about uh, directed thought, for example, well, <clears throat> it tends to teach it in terms of like thinking about the breath. And I think that's like fine. But uh, this aspect of really being able to generally think thoughts that uh, cause good emotions, I didn't uh, really put uh, two and two together there necessarily. So mm -hmm. I've, I found it really much uh he tends to teach it the way that like one uh, to, you know, create uh, pleasurable feelings in the body by visualizing the breath a certain way and stuff like that, and which can work. But I find that it's really easier to uh, sometimes focus on the wholesome thoughts and that immediately like creates more relaxation. And it's mm -hmm. like easier to feel good that way, I would say. Well, a couple of things that can be said is, is that um, the complete practice, the correct practice, is explicitly spelled out in the suttas, but not in one sutta. It's more than one sutta. Um, and that there is a lot more in the suttas. But that correct practice can be gleaned out of the suttas. And historically, that has been uh, the case. But the better case is, is that when a student is around nobles who have already figured out the correct practice so that things can be guided and directed in that direction. But that's still no guarantee. Because there's many things that wind up getting missing. Um, an example of what you're talking about. Um, I remember having a conversation with uh, Dan Ingram uh, on Guru Viking where he brought a text. Where he was reading from Mahasi Savadar about how important the joy is. Even with Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa in his books, and he, as far as I know now, that there have been historically four of them, the last one written in the 1980s. Um, there have been four books on Anapanasati where Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa goes absolutely through the detail of all of this. And he does it in the same order that they do in the suttas, which makes sense because the suttas are following the Satipatthana. Now, what that means is, is that the real diamonds, the real gems, the really important stuff is buried in a sequence of events. And that makes things really strange. An example of that is uh, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's in one of the books on Anapanasati talks about gladdening the mind. And in that chapter, he says, this is the first thing that should be done. This is on page 218 of that book. 
Okay, so this is how the actual practice can get lost. And it's also lost in the way that an individual teacher will tell an individual student and it they get they get missed. Where Tanisaro is giving you the correct information, but the way that it was given to you was the way that he got it from the, the Thai teacher that he had. And so there was a combination of various misses along the way to the point that even though you knew it didactically, you didn't know how to put it into practice at all. Yeah, that's somewhat true, especially since I, you know, just read the book he wrote. I mean, there's a lot that can go missing when they, you know, it's not transmitted from person to person, but they are, you know, writing it down with some idea and I'm reading it and maybe having a different idea. And I, I don't have a way to check. Well, this is the way that I have uh, come come down to understanding that uh, the Dhamma is best learned in small groups. And basically, the smaller the group, the better. And that I can also see that that happens actually in medicine quite a lot also. That yes, there will be really big lectures that have sometimes 100, 200, 300, 400. I've seen in physics classes, the physics 101 has like 750 students in it. Guess what? That, la that class doesn't have a lab. And so they can handle that many students just sitting and listening and watching slides and watching videos and whatnot like that. But autopsy. That has to be done where someone is close enough to smell what the body smells like and gag on it several times. And so that's done in, in small groups. In, in fact, I bring that up all, always with a smile. In, um, in the movie, it's a Mel Brooks movie. Uh, the name of the book is Dead and Loving It, and it's uh, Leslie Nielsen playing uh, the vampire. And in there, uh, there's a skit where um, Mel Brooks himself uh, is uh, doing the role of the doctor in an autopsy. And his entire point, the way that he's doing this autopsy, is to get every student uh, in that small room to pass out. <laughs> And then after they all pass out, that his favorite nurse walks in and, and looks at all the bodies and says, yeah, well, Professor, he got them all to pass out this time. <laughs> and the reason that I find that funny is because going back to that classroom of 750 students, not one student's going to pass out. You have to be right there to see what's going on in order for that transmission, that really strong transmission to get transmitted. And um, joy is exactly that way. That in, then in fact, um, uh, jokes are done better when there is some laughter around. And so uh, the, the triggers are there. And the um, uh, the situation is set up right, and so even though the books on from Mahasi 
have it, even though the books from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa have this quality, even though Tanishiro talks about it, mentions it, that in fact it's all over the place, still by the time Western Buddhism gets a hold of it, they kind of miss that point. That basically people will better understand and learn what they already know and things that are foreign and difficult for them to understand uh, takes more than just reading about it. And so uh, the whole quality then of the practice of um, Anapanasati is actually a transmission of several things, including joy, enthusiasm, delight for the Dhamma. Um, uh, in fact, enthusiasm seems to be the word that kind of fills it all in. Uh, and I use the word enthusiasm or ego, which is a completely different word than devotion or sure. dedication, right? The dedication and devotion are, are supposedly, in our language, very, very high deals. But enthusiasm, that's what gets the job done. When the student is eager for the Dhamma, when the student is um, um, uh, enthusiastic, and so uh, this is part of the, uh, the way that Anapanasati is best taught is when the students understand that the enthusiasm is actually going to grow when there is congratulations there. And when there is no congratulations, then the enthusiasm cannot grow that we have to actually uh, see that this was something that could be done, needed to be done, and is worthwhile doing. And whether it was hard or not is not the issue. In our society, how hard it is winds up being how big the, um, uh, the congratulations is. Mm -hmm. But a better way of looking at it, not how hard it was, but rather what was, what was the windfall? What was the value of it? And so the value here, even though the practice is not hard to do, the value that we receive from it is great. But we have to keep repeating it over and over and over again. And so this is when we come back to the one statement of the Buddha that he teaches only one thing, Dukkha and Dukkha Naroda. And coming out of that dukkha into the dukkha Naroda is to be done in the here now, not something that's planned for or hoped in later times. <clears throat> and this is one of the problems that gets involved with the teaching of the Dhamma is, is that in our Western society, European and American society, is actually the whole society is based upon delayed gratification. Delayed gratification. You can't have your gratification now. You've got to put in all the work. You got to learn your one, two, threes. You got to learn your ABCs. Then you got to learn arithmetic and you got to learn words, uh -huh. right? And it's just more work and more work and more work. And um, it's interesting that some students, we don't quite know why, but some students get enthusiastic and eager about a certain kind of topic. 
Now, if we could learn to teach that enthusiasm, if we could teach that in first grade, then teaching wouldn't be so hard and learning wouldn't be hard. But we don't teach the children in that enthusiasm. We teach them instead to concentrate, which means that you got to look like you're working hard. <laughs> and the way that I use the word concentration is in the sense of repeating, repeating over and over and over and over again. So concentrating on the book means that you just keep coming back to it every every word every sentence every paragraph you keep coming back to it coming back to it coming back to it coming back to it and we can use that kind of understanding as concentration because we keep coming back to it but this is also the big quality about sati is that it's not that we're we're trying to practice the skill of sati in order for it to stick solidly but that we're learning how to create it. Give you two examples. One is, is that it's very hard to teach a dog to come when it's tied up or in a box. Okay, if it's in a box or in a kennel, if it's stuck, if it's tied to a tree, then it can't, you're not, it's not going to learn how to come. When somebody calls him from a distance okay so this is one of the points about sati is is that we want to develop it so that it comes quickly when we need it which is a completely different view of keeping it on your mind all the time because if we stay and dwell and dwell and dwell over something we'll, i mean you've got patients who come that because they just can't get something off their mind so it's not a matter of locking the mind up into something, but it's rather developing the skill that will bring it back over and over and over again. So in this part of Anapanasati, it's actually stated right there in the sutta, but many people just read right through it. That's one of the problems of uh, normal literature is, is that there's kind of a bottom line or a point to it. There's a who done it at the end of the book and that kind of stuff. And yet I have read books where the first third of the book or the first half of the book was the whole book and all the rest of it was just garbage. Carlos Castaneda's first book, you know about him. Um, uh, uh, Vila, uh, excuse me. Uh, um, one of the monks that I know, uh, Virasak Viradamo, had written a book on self and no self. And the first part of the book was really excellent. But the second part of the book, there was nothing to it. But we get upside down with that in the sense of some of the best stuff is going to be presented first. And we keep reading and reading and reading, looking for the good stuff. But it's already hit us right in the face and we missed it. Okay. And this phrase that I'm talking about is actually step one of Anapanasati, where it says in the sutta, it's translated this, and I think that the translation is part of the problem. Mindfully, one breathes in long, and mindfully, one breathes out long. 
Okay, this is the understanding that you're breathing in long and understanding that you're breathing out long. And then later that phrase is um, added with all of the other uh, points like gladdening the mind, investigating the mind, uh, uh, bringing in sukha. Uh, thus one trains oneself while mindfully breathing in long and mindfully breathing out long. Okay, now <clears throat> the word mindfulness here is, is good enough, but we can get it even a better translation by saying that you have to remember that this breath is long in breath. And then this breath is a long out breath, but in between the ins and the outs, because as we slow our breathing down, there's going to be room for many, many, many mind moments. There's a whole lot that we can do within one breath. And yet we do want to at least have sati enough to where when we are breathing, that there is enough to remember that this is an in-breath long and that this is an out-breath long. All right. And so... Um, this quality then of the breathing is really, really valuable because it's building the skill of sati to remember, to remember that this is a long in-breath. When you're taking a long out-breath, you don't have to remember uh, because it's not even happening an in-breath. This is an out-breath. You should remember the long out-breath. But when the in-breath comes, that's when we remember, oh, now this is going to be a long in-breath. And so actually the remembering of or the sati for the long out-breath and the sati for the long in-breath is two different satis. And we want to have one and then the other and then the other and then the other, as well as bringing in sati for other things during that long in-breathing and out-breathing. It's almost like we become a one-man band. Have you ever seen a one-man band? Normally, they have a bass drum strapped to their back. They could do, and cymbals are on their heads, so they could do this way and play the cymbals. They could jerk a leg and play the bass drum. They're playing um, uh, a musical instrument like a harmonica that they can just play with their mouth. And then they've got some other instrument that they can play with their hands. And so they wind up being, becoming a one-man band, okay? And so he has to practice that so that he can actually make music out of it that's, um, that, that works together. So this is kind of a, how we are then going to be practicing Anapanasati is combining the breath with one of these other skills that we're working on in that moment and that that moment is going to change so that the skills that we're working on are going to change. And so the sequence of events then is to mindfully wake up to or with sati to remember to open things up. Okay, here we go. This is going to be one of those sati moments. All right. And the first thing that happens then would be step nine of Anapanasati, which is to investigate the mind. What kind of thought am I having right now? And even more importantly than that, what's the state of mind? What's, what's the state of mind or what's the attitude? Or there's many different ways. In fact, in the sutras, they talk about it. Is the mind dull? Is it sharp? Is it exalted? Is it focused? Is it um, lazy? 
is it uh, workable or not? And so we investigate the mind to see what sort of condition that it's in. And then we're going to connect with the thoughts to see what kind of thoughts that this mental condition that we've gotten ourselves into are producing. Because the mind state has a great influence upon the mind's objects. Just like the surgical instruments that a doctor would use greatly determines the outcome of that surgery. He's using the wrong tools if he's using a pair of pliers rather than a forceps. <laughs> okay, so you get the idea that um, that this is the mind state. The mind state is going to produce the mind's objects. So if the mind is in a state of, oh, oh poor me, all this is hard work in the victim state of mind, then the oh poor me thoughts are going to come up. And so investigating the state of mind as well as the thoughts that we have is the very first thing that we do. The next thing that we do is, is that with that we figure out, well, where can we tweak this thing? Can we set the timing on this engine or can we uh, reroute this vein or, you know, something like that? This is what we mean by gladdening the mind is whatever kind of thought that we have, we can make an improvement on that. Whatever mind state that we're in, we can generally improve upon that. It's only occasionally when the mind is exalted. Most of the time it's uh, dull or ordinary or uh, 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 filled with work to do um filled with an emotion or something like that and in fact we'll talk about that later and that is is that the state of mind is generally decided by the way we feel but wait a minute the way that we think also determines how we feel they're in a kind of a loop or a cycle together and we have to work with the body also because if the body is is not well then we're not going to feel good and we're not going to be having happy thoughts. If in fact, and, and you've already uh, uh, heard about this, though we haven't as human beings quite figured it out, but we've at least got the label of psychosomatic, right? The mind does affect the body. Yeah. Psychosomatic, okay? How does that happen? We're not really sure about, but when we start to practice Anapanasati, we can sure see that that's the case. That the mind affects the feelings, the feelings affect the body, the body affects the feelings, uh, the feelings affect the mind. Sometimes the body affects the mind directly, and so they're kind of in a, uh, a loop or a circle there. And the funny part about it is, is that this is actually the Satipatthana. The, the body, the feelings, and the mind are all interrelated. But we have to pull them apart and inspect them individually in order then to see the connections between the two of them. And in fact, uh, several of the states of, uh, of items of Anapanasati, um, Basically, with the four foundations of mindfulness, the body, the feelings, the mind, and the mind's objects, each one of those has details. And the details are then uh, what they call the, uh, the tetrads. Um, they're actually quadrats. <laughs> I don't know why they're using tetrads, but in, uh, the, the point is, is that that winds up with 16 steps 
of Anapanasati. And the two of them most specifically is how the mental conditioners condition the mind, which is step number eight of Anapanasati, as well as the relaxing of the body has the quality of relaxing the feelings and vice versa. So when the body is tense and uptight, then the feelings are going to be tense and uptight. And when the body is completely relaxed, then the feelings will be that way too. So they have to work together. And so this is what we're actually looking at is, is that we have to look at Anapanasati both at an individual peace level as well as how they fit together and how they connect. Uh, you could say that in the sense of putting a jigsaw puzzle together. You have to look at both the colors and perhaps figure out where where it fits on the puzzle. But then you have to look at the way those edges are curled around so you can see exactly how to put it where. Now that we know where to put it, we've got to figure out how to put it in there. So this is an example then of understanding Anapanasati is by working with the mind to uh, investigate the mind, to see how the body and the mind and the feelings work together, how they influence each other, so that we're beginning now to work with gladdening of the mind directly in order to change the way the body feels. And then the body and the mind are going to work together to change the way that our feelings feel. Now, that's something that's not in the sutras, but it's something that I've come to understand. And actually, you can see how easy that is, that it's easy to remember and then to take a deep in-breath. That's easy to do. Just think, and then the body does it. There's that direct connection. We can, in fact, control our breathing. But we can't necessarily control our feelings. If we're feeling bad and uncomfortable, we can't just say, oh, just take a long, deep feeling breath, you know, mm-hmm. and feel good immediately. So we have to use the body and the way that the body feels as well as the mind and how the mind is um, uh, the states of mind that we're in and the mind's objects. So the easiest thing that we can change is the mind's objects. That's the easiest one of all these things to change. This is why we start with gladdening the mind in the sense of that's the new object that we're going to put in the mind. We're going to start with the easy thing first by changing the content of the mind, lifting it up. Whatever we've got there, we can make an improvement to that. And... um, one of the ways that we can think about that is, is that the thoughts that we have about the past, about something that didn't go well or uh, something that needs to be fixed, some undone work needs to be done. And so the past works with the future. And so the mind generally is spending mind objects of past and the future and the past and the future, not even understanding that we can actually fe- make ourselves feel bad just be by thinking about the unpaid bills. Why? Because we get stuck on them over and over again, and after a while we begin to feel bad. Sometimes, though, one particular thought can cause us to feel bad almost instantly, almost mm-hmm. instantly, okay, within a second or so. 
And that in fact, this is what happens with, in meditation is people will have anxiety and don't even know where it comes from. And the answer to that is, is that that's because they weren't tracking the thoughts that they were having to see what thoughts of, and how those thoughts affect the feelings. But now we're going to start experimenting with that so that we can see how our thoughts affect the way that we feel. Now, normally we're already in the habit of not quite sure of what we're doing, but we're already in the habit of thinking in a way that makes us feel bad in the sense of fear, anger, anxiety, frustration, sadness, grief, despair, languish. I mean, there's a whole rat hole that we could go down. But the first one that I mentioned was fear because fear seems to be the primary one. The primary, in fact, anxiety attack is nothing but uh, or a panic attack is nothing but fear itself. Yeah. And anger is fear plus justification that I'm right. And so we want to feel powerful. But if we weren't afraid of anything, then the likelihood of getting anger is very low. It's only when the enemy comes somehow, either into the mind or he shows up at the door or whatever like that, but the anger that we have for the enemy is based in fear. If we were not afraid of him at all, then we could just humor him. But we become angry because we're afraid. All right. So if we understand then that fear is the bottom issue, then that one's the one that we can start to work with in gladdening the mind. Because if we can take the mind out of a state of fear, then it's unlikely for it to go into any of that long list that I just gave. There is no frustration unless there's fear, because frustration is fear that I can't get it done. Okay, that in fact, grief has a lot to do with, oh, poor me, what will I do now that my wife has died? And it's, it's generally a selfish kind of thing. We take comfort in hearing that they've gone to a better place. But the reality is, is how can I get myself into a better place? Never mind her. She's dead now. <laughs> That's the real issue is how can we come out of our state of grief? And that uh, those kind of um, uh, funeral things are not always effective. And generally, they're not. In fact, in our society, it's gotten to the point that the more money you spend, then the more uh, easier to get over it. It's easier to get over it if you spend a lot of money on the on funeral. And there's been whole funeral industries coming up with that. So uh, this back to the point about if we can learn then to gladden the mind. That means that we can begin to start working both with the body and the feelings. And the way that we would work with the body is, is that by watching the breath, you can't watch a past breath. You can't watch a future breath. The only breath that we can watch is the one right here, right now. And if we are, in fact, watching it, paying attention to it, then that's another way of spending a mind moment. That's another way of thinking, except that now we're thinking about the body and the breathing, 
as opposed to thinking about Aunt Susie dying. So being in the here now is uh, the part that we begin to work with, with the gladdening of the mind, but we're going to so come out of the past, out of the future, into the present moment, and then actually enjoy this breath come to some pleasure within this breath. We don't necessarily have to visualize it, but one thing is for sure, and that is that if you don't think that this this breath is in, in worth enjoying, then wait for a while, a minute, a two, or three. And then when you do breathe, you really like it. I've actually done that with students, to have them to hold their breath. I, I watch them until they begin to show signs that they want it. <laughs> and then I say, you want that breath? Now don't. <laughs> and when you take it in. Ah, okay. Well, guess what? Every breath can be met with that kind of joy, that kind of realization. I'm still alive. Wow. What else is important? In a way, we could say that every one of us has a death sentence. We're going to all die in five minutes. But we can each get a reprieve for a few minutes just by taking a breath. And if we look at it that way, that breath itself is life-giving. That we really need this breath. So the breathing and staying alive is really the only thing that's important. Buying that new car or Backing up that hard drive or training that puppy uh, potty training, none of that stuff's really important. The only thing that's important is this next breath. This is the way then to practice Anapanasati is with that joy that this breath is life giving. And we begin to pay attention to what the body feels like when it's breathing. Now, this is common knowledge. Everybody will say that but they don't actually add that an extra point about how good it feels. They just say, watch how it feels. Mm -hmm. And the important point is to begin to understand how good this feels. It's life-giving. And that if we continue to breathe deeply, then the body will become not completely um, uh, 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 what, the, what they call hypo, I forget the uh, uh, hyperventilated. We don't get hyperventilated, but we do change the body's chemistry, blood chemistry, by adding a lot of oxygen. And by adding a lot of oxygen to the bloodstream, we become, uh, we begin to have the, the bodily sensations of tingly alive. We become much more alive. In fact, uh, many times students will get tired in meditation. And the reason that they get tired is because they're not breathing well. It's easy just to sit and let the breathing go into, uh, let us say, a very conservative mode. But with mindfulness of breathing, when we remember to breathe long and continue to breathe in long and begin to focus the mind on the breathing and enjoy the breath, gladdening the mind, we actually come out of that tiredness and start to feel really alive. Practice feeling really alive. I'm making sounds intentionally, but you don't have to make the sound. 
But the point is to take some long, deep breaths, one after another, after another, and experience what that happens has to do with the body. Allows the body to wake up, to become tingly alive. You can feel the tingling in your feet even, as well as on your arms. Not only that, but the chest feels almost at ease now rather than a tightness. That anxiety is actually a kind of a blockage. Anxiety generally has something to do with adrenaline. You know, that the reptilian brain and all of that. So you have the the penal and pituitary glands that send messages right down to the adrenaline gland. And one of the jokes that I really love is why is the adrenaline gland located where it's located? The answer to that is, where is it going to get its garbage to make its junk? (laughs) Going to get them out of the kidneys and out of the liver. So the uh, adrenaline gland is going to be right there. And you know as a doctor how those things are connected up. This is the reason why. Is that all the stuff that the kidneys and the, um, the liver collected, those amino acids and things like that, is what the adrenaline gland is going to use to build cortisol and adrenaline and pump it right back into the bloodstream. Except it's also possible that those amino acids, if we're breathing out heavy, not only does carbon dioxide get uh, start to get breathing out, but so do small amino acids and things like that. And so in a way, what I'm saying is is that the body is more acidic when we're not practicing correctly. But when we are practicing correctly, the body, uh, the acidity of the body comes down and uh, the base, basic is is built up just a little bit so that we become uh, happier, a feeling of well-being, a feeling of being balanced better simply because of the breathing, but paying attention to the breathing and and gladdening the mind now, those two things give us a tool to begin to operate with the feelings that we have, mostly fear. And so the way that we gladden the mind then is by talking about that right now everything is safe. I'm having good air, I can breathe well, there are no gorillas in the room. There's no pythons on the floor. There's no boogeyman in the closet. There's no bear under the bed. You know, the kinds of things that children think about to scare the daylights out of themselves. Okay. And so now we can take comfort in that there is nothing dangerous around. If we can feel safe and secure. That's a basic part of the practice of Anapanasati, and it's a building up of the sukha. Because when we feel in danger, then that's a dissatisfaction. We don't like to feel in danger. We don't like to feel the fear. And so we can come out of that fear, not to fear fearlessness. We're not talking about fearlessness. Fearlessness is what the, uh, the courageous warrior does when he goes into battle. Here, we recognize that there's no battle. We don't put on our armor to go into battle. We cook supper for our friend, who you used to call an enemy. And when we called him an enemy, we were afraid of him, and so we had to be fearless in battle. But now that he's a friend, we could feel comfortable 
and safe and secure. So there's a difference between this. And so we have to look at that, that, that this is not um, fearlessness in the, in the face of danger. This is the recognition. There's nothing to be dangerous, to have feelings of danger, that we can feel safe and secure. Everything is all right now. Everything is fine. And with that, we also practice feeling secure, safe, secure, and now comfortable. Getting the body comfortable. Now, in uh, most practices of uh, meditation in Buddhism, somehow or another, because the Asians sit comfortably on the four cross legged, the Westerners think they got to sit that way too. And yet, Westerners, especially like in Estonia, you've got a winner there. Your two and three and four year old kids do not play all their uh, all day long on the floor. You put them on a carpet, or you put them in a chair set them at a table, something like that to get them off the floor. But here in the tropics, the floor is cool. We want to sit on the floor. So it's just because of the weather or the climate that we're in is what determines whether we're good at sitting on the floor or not. And yet Westerners, they have to work really hard and train really hard and all of that. And I've, I've got a, actually, she's my stepdaughter, that I met her when she was 11. And she was sitting in the lotus posture to eat then. Now she's graduating from college 10 years later, and she still uh, sits not just cross-legged, but in a full lotus posture while she's eating her food. She's been able to do that her whole life, and so it's nothing special for her. And that I've also been at parties where I was the only one sitting in a chair because I'm an old man and I'm kind of the head of the family and got some money and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And everybody else is sitting on the floor, cross-legged. Some of them don't even bother to go to the temple. They don't have a meditation practice, but they can sit on the floor just fine. If we understand that, then we can understand that meditation or the practice of Anapanasati is not related to the posture that you're in. It's related to the comfort of the posture that you're in. And so the Buddha talks about all four postures, the sitting posture, the lying posture, the standing posture, and the walking posture. I've got a few more, but they're somewhere in between. But between the lying and the sitting posture is the reclining posture. And that's a good one to practice also. So um, the various postures have to do with are we comfortable? Because if we are not comfortable, then we don't like the pain. We're in a state of dissatisfaction. We're in a state of dukkha. And so some meditation teachers they have a strong determination setting wanting the students to sit for long periods of time when in fact for long periods of time the mind gets dull the students don't have the attention span they're not thinking about breathing in breathing out breathing in breathing out and so their breathing is getting normal back to, uh, back to a normal breathing by being cross-legged they sometimes cut off circulation here and there and now They've got itches, they've got pain, they've got all kinds of struggles going on. 45 minutes into their sitting, and there is no Anapanasati possible in that particular situation. No real Anapanasati. It's only an endurance test, which is not what we're practicing. 
This is one of the reasons why students wind up quitting meditations because they're not getting the benefit out of it. But the benefit that we're looking for can be had fairly quickly. Ten minutes would be what I would recommend for practice. Ten minutes, maybe 20, but 20 later. Right now, 10 in the beginning. Just 10 minutes to practice, to practice so that we actually are practicing deep breathing for 10 minutes. We're actually practicing long in-breath, long out-breath. We're practicing feeling safe, feeling secure, feeling comfortable. And the next ingredient on that list is feeling satisfied that right now everything is okay. This is good enough. I've gotten everything that I need. If I can get myself into a state of satisfaction, then we can rec recognize we are practicing correctly. And this is only three steps of the eight vulnerable paths we've got going here. To remember, to look at what we're doing and to take the effort to gladden the mind and to take control of the breathing. And now the fourth ingredient that's added is that when we can do this, and we and the, the body and the mind then work together to get the feelings into the state of safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied, and we practice this over and over and over again, because something new is beginning to stir. And what is that something new? In the Pali, it's called sada. And, it's, and we can translate that as confidence, not faith. That uh, some people say, oh, you have to have some faith to get even started. No, you've already got evidence. Christianity has to go faith because they've got no evidence. They claim the church of Jesus. With Anapanasati, anyone can take one breath or two breaths and get benefit of it, and they can see it right there. So this is not faith, this is confidence, but that confidence begins to grow and to grow and to grow into from just I feel satisfied right now into the attitude I can feel satisfied. I am successful. I am able to do this. And so we add that fourth ingredient, which is um, um, uh, in, in the April Noble Path, it's called Sama Sankapa. And we have to take the added, uh, the effort to gladden the mind to the point that we feel like that we can do this. It's, this is where the attitude changes from the attitude of a victim. Oh, this is hard work, but I'll get it done somehow. And the, wow, this is a piece of cake. Wow, this really works. Wow, this is enthusiasm itself. We really get enthusiastic for the path because we congratulate ourselves with the success. So now we've changed the feelings from fear, pain, sorrow. I've got to practice. This is hard work, all of that. Now we've got built up to safe, secure, comfortable, satisfied, and successful. But that even grows further. The success winds up with the top uh, the top item on the cake then is feeling wealthy. This is where we add the generosity. In other words, when we have so much joy that it overflows, there's no place else to put it but to just let it spill out all over the place. We feel wealthy with it. 
And so this is the the Sama Sankapa. This is the uh, the the uh, the congratulations. This is the celebration of life itself. Wow, it feels so good to feel alive, and I can feel this good feeling alive by practice. Over and over again, we practice this. This is the Sama Sankapa. Is we practice over and over and over again to feel safe, secure, comfortable, satisfied, successful, and then wealthy. We're not just a successful businessman, we're a wealthy business, except that the business that we have is the business of living, being alive. And so this is a, a, a further way of beginning to understand this is the Eightfold Noble Path. When we have that wealth of feeling alive, this is also think, talking about it in the sense of the, the mind becomes unified and whole. There is no more separations. There is no more conflict within the mind. We don't have arguments between the parent and the child. Or... We don't have any lies. There's no reason to lie anymore because the truth is absolutely the best there is. Why should I bother to lie? Also, we don't want anything. So we're not going to hurt anybody to get it. So our morality, this is in fact, this is something that's hard for a lot of people to understand. But the teaching of the Buddha is actually a moral teaching. Because when you get your mind clean, your life will be clean, and when your mind and your life are clean, then your behavior is going to be naturally clean. Except that we put it backwards. We try to tell people, oh, your morality is not good. You've got to change your behavior. And what's in your mind is not the issue. We're only interested in your behavior. In fact, the laws are, stru uh, are structured that way, that somebody can plan and go and buy all the ingredients for a bomb and do all kinds of things, but they can't arrest him until he shows the intent of doing the crime, but just buying the goods. So he's planning and planning and planning and planning. That's legal. Here, we're talking about it from the absolute opposite of that. The morality does not come now from behavior. It comes from the fact that the mind is clean and the body and the life is clean, and then the morality is clean. So this is what actually adds to the Eightfold Noble Path to make it uh, Eightfold, is that our actions, our speech, and our livelihood are cleaned out because the mind is cleaned out. And the mind is cleaned out because we remember to look at what's going on, to gladden the mind and congratulate ourselves over and over and over again, and that helps unify the mind. Another example of the mind not being unified is when there's doubts. Doubts nothing but, uh, let us say, uh, introductory worries. And one of the qualities that we have to understand is a lot, our society loves scholarship. The more knowledge, better. People have to study the books, study more books, and study more books. 
And then they get into Buddhism and they begin to do the same thing, that there's a lot of Buddhist scholars. They want every sutta. They want to know what's there and all of that. But the reality is, is that the actual teachings of the Buddha is actually quite small. There's not much to it. And that all we need to know is just enough to get our mind straightened out, to get the mind cleaned out, to get our life cleaned out. And that's all we really need to know. Everything else is just added information. And so if we know enough, the enough is all we need. We don't need enough plus 20 or 30 libraries full of books. Just enough. And so that's what makes the teaching of the Buddha so simple. And in fact, now that we've opened the package, the full Eightfold Noble Path, we haven't gotten all of what we need yet, but we can at least see that, yeah, that could be put right back together in just one statement. Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda. Or a statement that I like that's very comfortable in this regard, and it's also the full teaching of the Buddha. It says, never mind, start again. That's Goenka's statement, okay? Never mind all the garbage that's in there. Just come back to the breath, start again. Another one would be, don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, be happy. Now that phrase, many, many millions of people have heard the phrase, but they don't know how to put it into practice. And so we actually need to know not just the formation of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda, or don't worry, be happy. We have to actually know how to put that into practice. But that's all we need to know is how to do it. And uh, one of the important qualities of that is, is that it has to be done over and over and over again, building up new mind moments, one after the other. We spent our whole lives so far talking ourselves into feeling bad. Now it's time to practice talking ourselves into feeling good. And we had to keep practicing over and over and over again. And so this is the Eightfold Noble Path. And that the next time we'll start to talk about how the mind works. But this is enough to get us started. That in fact, uh, this, this statement, how the mind works, is actually uh, the definition of the second noble truth. So now that we've gone through the first and now the fourth noble truth, we're going to start uh, putting some attention on actually how the mind works, which is basically when you have greed or if you have ill will and you have delusion, then you will have dukkha. But in fact, uh, uh, some places, uh, the magical description of that is Myra and his three daughters. Myra is the dukkha and the three daughters are greed, ill will, and delusion. But that expands all the way out into the teaching of Paticca Samapada or dependent origination. Have you ever heard that phrase? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next time, we'll talk about that a little bit. But uh, right now, I think that we've gotten it set up to where you've got just what you need to do to get yourself into a really beautiful state. 
You can feel the way you want to feel. How would you feel if you could feel the way you wanted to feel? Good. <laughs> All right. So go practice. <laughs> go practice feeling really good. All right. Do you have any questions about what we've done, talked about today? Not right now. Not right now. All right. Well, good. You go practice this. Have a ball. And we'll see you later, Marcus. All right. All right? Okay. We'll see you.